This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And my dear friends, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein are here with me today. Mike and Jeff, how are you? Uh, we're doing well, and it's amazing we're here. So congratulations to you, Ann, and to our excellent producer, Patty Hall, for making this happen. Jeff, how are you? Uh, I'm I'm great. I'm possibly even better than Mike. <laughs> oh, no. and, and already and we have a competition. <laughs> yeah, we're not. <laughs> well, I, I want our listeners to know that we are not in the Wharton studio because we are adapting to the times and doing what we were supposed to do, and that means that we are taping this through the miracle of online conferencing technology, each in our own homes. And we're very excited to have uh, our debut show, our virtual debut show today with two guests. And our guests today are Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon. And they have updated a book that Jeff and I and Mike know very well, and that's called Leading Successful Change, Eight Keys to Making Change Work. Cassie and Greg, welcome to the show. Good morning. Great to have you. How about, before we start, let me say just a little bit about you, and then we can uh, detail your biographies as we go. Greg, Greg, you consult, research, write, and teach in the areas of organizational and individual change and leadership. You're adjunct professor of management here at the Wharton School, and also president of Shea and Associates. Cassie, you are the president and founder of the New Group Consulting, and you coach leadership and consult with organizations on the design and implementation of strategic change. And I know that uh, Jeff will agree with me when I say that we've been the beneficiaries of some of your, uh, your great work on change. So how about just as an opening question, uh, why is it that change is so difficult for us all? And I ask this question against the backdrop of a pandemic that has forced us all to change, whether we like it or not. So why is change so difficult? Let me, let me take a, a first pass at the, at the beginning of that cosmic question, and then uh, uh, I'm sure Cassie will, um, will fill it out. Uh, so, you know, I, I think one of our uh, biggest struggles is that we don't, we don't think about um, we don't think about the fact that in the end we change because we feel a need to change. Period. Uh, if people don't feel a need to change, if we don't start there, uh, then we're not going to change. So people have to recognize that, embrace it, uh, and then we can move through a variety of the steps that uh, we can find in so many so many places in terms of how one might might proceed. But if we don't start with the fact of felt need. If we don't find the energy source that we need, either uh, from from fear, because we are afraid of what will happen if we don't change, or because we're drawn to some vision of, of a better world that is exciting uh, uh, to us, whether that's in our, our public domain or our private domain, or some often some mixture of those things. So many of the things that we read are about techniques, but absent working on felt need, to begin with, the rest of it's not going to happen, just as if you don't then think about what are the techniques that you need to put in place, which we spend some time on uh, uh, in the book, uh, then uh, you know the, the, the intent is not going to happen. So the book really is about um, picking up the story of if, if you want people to change, how do you create felt need for them in their locale to change in a particular direction. And and that change can be collaborative in terms of the intention and what the way people think the world could or might look at work, for example. Um, it, there's no reason it can't be. But whatever it is, if I don't 
create a world that creates a felt need for people to go and change, then what we end up with is, are these abysmal statistics regarding the success of change, and they are abysmal. Uh, and uh, and I suggest that much of that is that we don't start with this notion of I've got to create a felt need for folks, which in an organizational sense means I need to design the environment around people that encourages them to move in a, in a particular in a particular direction. They can collaborate in the construction of that, uh, but if I don't create that environment that creates that felt need, people are not going to have the sustained energy to go about doing what um, they we or they want to go about doing, and whether that's Ornish and trying to change your diet, uh, or whether that's trying to change the direction of of, of an organization, and we have a number of them in, in the book, uh, it's the underlying the same the same process. So, Cassie, let me draw you in if if we pick up on what Greg said about the importance of a felt need. Is the failure of having or not having a felt need, is that the main reason why change fails? I think that felt need is a fantastic place to start, um, especially if you think about the moment in time that we're at where the world is changing around us very rapidly because the felt need is very strong. Um, but I think it's one of two ingredients for successful change. I would say the other point we make in the book is that the change has to be orchestrated in a way that's coherent. Um, and I can think of two examples that we're living through. Um, one, one would be sort of the, the national stockpile and everyone's scrambling to create, you know, personal protective equipment for our healthcare workforce and ventilators. There are a lot of really smart people working very, very hard on that problem. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a pretty good example of a failed change because it doesn't benefit from a really coherent strategy at the top. Mm -hmm. um, but in the countervailing example, I think, is what we're seeing in our health systems around telemedicine and virtual health. So there's a great article yesterday about what Jefferson is doing, and they're pulling all eight levers of change and almost overnight creating virtual health care to keep us all out of the doctor's office and to take care of people that are testing positive for COVID. So it's that coherence of the design of the change and the felt need that you need, you need both of those ingredients. That's great. Very good. Well, let me get Mike into the conversation here. Mike. Uh, well, great to be on the show with you in the circumstance. And uh, Cassie, maybe beginning with you and then to Greg, if you could just pick one of your featured examples in the book, uh, Twitter, Whirlpool, and just walk us through what successful change looks like through the eyes of the manager who's trying to do it. So if you could just, uh, Cassie, get us going on an example uh, to flesh these things out, and maybe beginning with uh, the first point that Greg offered up, uh, it's not natural to want to change. So there it is over to you, Cassie. Thanks. And the one I was thinking about this morning, so I'll, I'll start there if that's all right, is uh, the Viacom case. And the manager in question was Bob Backish. When he took over the company, um, the stock price had fallen by 50%, and there had been a tremendous fight between his predecessor and the board. Um, and his, his mission really was twofold. One was to create a coherent strategy from among a, a number of separate companies, acquisitions that had taken place over 17 years, and absolutely no shared Viacom identity. So they had Comedy Central, and they had um, Spike TV and they had Nickelodeon I and mean, there was just no kind of coherent um, brand. And it was a really a combination, I think, of using all of the levers, but the ones that I was thinking about this morning because of the times that we're in, uh, is he had to really, it, that case is like a master class in internal corporate communication. Two days after he was appointed to the job, he started something called Bob Live and was broadcast to the entire workforce globally um, and went on frequently, very transparently talking about the problems that the company was having. Um, and then they created this incredible suite of sort of experiences for people that pulled the people lever, they did training, um, they changed the way they were organized, they pulled the organization lever, um, a lot of workforce changes in terms of the task lever. Um, but the, the other thing about the communication that was fascinating is they really 
um, used social media. So everything they did internally to communicate with their employees, they pushed out on social media. Um, so they, they blended the internal and the external communication, which I think is a pretty uh, critical set of skills for the world that we're in right now. And they were reaching you know, a workforce that was global. So they were not co-located when they were doing these events. Great. I'm going to get uh, Greg into that one, too. But I think before we do that, I think Anne would like to remind us who the heck we are. You know, Jeff, um, Mike, I'm so impressed. You knew that virtually. Yes, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Anne Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem and Jeff Klein. And together we are talking with Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon, the co-authors of Leading Successful Change. And then, Greg, over to you, and then I've got a quick follow-up question before we bring Jeff in. So, so uh, sorry. So I, I was going to um, uh, try to supplement what Cassie had said, and that one of the opening quotes that we use in the book is uh, from actually a writer of fiction who says, our ability to adapt is amazing. Our ability to change isn't quite as spectacular. <laughs> uh, it's, that's uh, Lisa Lutz from the Spellman strike again. And <clears throat> I think there's a, a truth in that uh, that guided uh, our work on this this model, uh, this, this writing over the over the years, which is that um, apart from the the play on 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 the language, it is very much that uh, it's not that people don't change. They 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 need uh, they need to uh, the, the notion of adapting to an environment. Uh, we're really good at that. Um, you know, we're the only species that lives on all seven continents. Um, we span a variety of different environments. We live entirely different lives as as people. We're very adaptive, right? Um, but we are skeptical about why should I go about changing? I mean, to to tell someone well, you really need to change, the, the first question would be why. I, I mean, if I'm doing okay, so if I don't have a felt need. To go about doing this, why would I? Why would I proceed? So, in playing with her her, her quote a bit, is that uh, we adapt very well to to environments over time in general. Uh, it's a it's a species skill, or we wouldn't be in all the places that um, that we are. So, the the importance I think is to um, is to work from that and to to say, well, what needs to be the environmental change around where people work that would induce a behavioral change that we think would be effective, right? Um, and so the core of the model really is, all right, so what is it that you want to see? And and if you're not seeing it, and we think in terms of scenes and the constructions of scenes, uh, if you're not seeing it, uh, l let's go to the place that what people are doing is probably adaptive. We're very good adaptive creatures. So what would we need to change about the environment to drive a different set of behaviors that would be adaptive to this different environment? So the intervention around change is to construct that environment that would drive us to act in ways uh, that we um, that would be that would be particularly adaptive or more productive or more profitable, uh, and that's the work of the model is to try to provide people a way to think about what are you trying to actually create here, which are the scenes that you want people to engage in, and and let's 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 not assume you've hired all the people who are who are um, biologically opposed to acting in that way, let's construct uh, the environment to which they will adapt because we are adaptive creatures. So, Greg, i got a quick uh, follow-up on that short, but here it is. And for Cassie as well, let's say I'm a restaurant owner in uh, Utah, uh, Salt Lake City, and I've been shut down and I serve people at tables. I don't do takeout. That's somebody else historically. I don't, I don't do that. But to survive, that restaurant owner is going to have to change. So <clears throat> in response to the statement, I can't change. I've been at this for 25 years doing it the way I do it. Uh, Cassie, maybe you want to pick up on that uh, and then over to Greg very briefly here. Uh, what's your answer to somebody or what's your thought to somebody who says, I can't make the changes that I know i got to make? I think um, I want to support what Greg just said about the environment influencing me one way or the other. And we talk about the strength of a lever. So, you know, a, a reward where, you know, I might, 
I might make a little more money if I do this, but I don't want to change. So that's not a strong enough incentive for me versus if I don't change, I'm going to go out of business. That's a, that's a pretty stark choice. That means that lever is being pulled as, you know, at a seven out of seven. Um, and I think that's what the model is showing us about these changes yeah. going on in the world right now. Everything's a seven. People are doing things literally overnight that they didn't think were possible, including takeout from a restaurant in Salt Lake. Good, good to have a burning platform, Greg. <laughs> well, one of the one of the first things I think for that person before they said I can't do it was if you can't establish a felt need, they're not going to do anything, right? So. Um, the first point would be, is there a need for some kind of change? And if they say yes, then the second question is, uh, what would it look like? What's the world you're trying to create look like? And that's the first part of the model is envision that. And then how would you bring that into reality? So uh, if the person says, I'm done, I don't want to do this, uh, that's <laughs> we're done. I mean, why, why, why pursue that? If they say, I don't know how to do this, I'd love to be able to survive, then I think the question becomes in terms of the, the book, all right, so let's talk about, let's create some scenes that in this world is limited. What would your business look like? Uh, be as, as much of a script writer as possible um, and, and, and construct scenes or scripts uh, that people that you can get excited about. So there's some energy there. And they say, all right, so what would need to be true for that to happen? Is it curbside service? Is it a particular kind of, of, of access to, to other kinds of organizations? But it's not, I think the big part of the, the book is that's at one sense a strategy, but what does it look like? What does it look like for people to live it? And then the, the book is about uh, trying to create a world that makes those behaviors happen, that if we can't get the behaviors that we're trying to see, scenes we're trying to create, it's very difficult to actually design, I think, effective change, which the, the, you know, the literature would support. I mean, most change efforts don't work. Well, maybe we should think about why that's true and not just blame the patient for that. Very good. Great. How about good on guidance. that note, so, let me uh, pull uh, Jeff Klein into the conversation. Jeff, a follow-up from you. Well, thanks, Anne. And uh, Cassie and Greg, it's it's great to chat with both of you. Um, as I've been listening to this conversation, uh, I, I think that the first question that has popped into my mind uh, when we think about change is, you know, in this notion of a felt need, um, how much of that felt need is the desire to move away from a state that that isn't working um and and how much do you think of it as moving towards something that you think will be more desirable um and cassie maybe we'll start with you and then uh dig into this a little bit more with greg so i think greg and i really see this in a similar way um we do i do a lot of idealized design so thanks to russ Koff, um to get people to think about the scene as greg says um, the future that they want to create, the, the thing that they can get excited about. And it's it's kind of a call and response between the eight levers and the visioning that's going on. Um, but people are, I think as Greg said, you know, they're they're motivated longer by hope than than they're motivated by fear. As you know, Mike mm -hmm. said it's a burning platform and it's it works really well for a short period of time. Um, but if you want lasting change, I think it's the it's the positive vision that pulls people. That's good. Greg, what would you add to that? So uh, I think to pick up on the notion of um, of are you pushed toward change or are you pulled toward change, I think one of the legacies um, before you were born, Jeff, um, <laughs> would be would be from the uh, the the, uh, the the 1980s especially, um, where we had this um, we had this long uh, period of just. Um, we moved from this notion of being pulled towards some type of preferred world and being repelled from some kind of threat. Uh, and, and, and much of that has been, uh, I think, under attended to in the literature and also in the way that we would answer your question. 
right? Uh, so there's this, uh, the whole notion of constructing a burning platform, well, we've lost the implicit image of what that, what that or the meaning of that implicit image. Oh, I want to change a human being. Let's build a human, let's build a burning platform and they'll change. Well, what's implicit in that, right? <laughs> I mean, there are all kinds of, and that really came out of the 1980s and all the, all the carnage that happened uh, during that time of internationalization and a whole bunch of other things that were going on. So I, I think one thing that we've done is we've lost track of, to answer your question, would be to, we've lost track of what the potential pull is of an ideal versus a push from a threat. Uh, and either one, uh, as Cassie was saying, could, either one can provide the motivation to go about doing the work of planning change, but they are different energy sources, right? Yeah. So a threat uh, in its purest form, all you want to do is get away from the threat. Uh, and a dream in its purest form is a pursuit, right? Yeah. So yeah. in the best world, I'd suggest, when we try to change something, is we want to be conscious about what motivation are we using and that leads us to different kinds of constructs, uh, including how we think about the use of the model that's laid, that's laid out here, right? So if I, if I want people motivated to change, seldom is it pure, but it's, if it's only fear, then as soon as the fire's out, people lose their motivation and they're exhausted. And in the process, they were not necessarily all that creative because they were scared witless. If I want people to have a more prolonged, if I can show them progress, if they can see progress toward a, a better place, um, that both frees up their creativity because they're not afraid, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's an easier thing to sustain over time. So as you think, I really appreciate that, uh, that, that distinction. And, and as you think about this, this process of, um, really understanding the dream or, or creating hope. Um, can you describe for us a little bit more that this idealized design process, this, uh, this output of creating the scene that you can then use the, the levers that you talk about within the book to change the environment and hopefully arrive at? So uh, let, me, let me take a quick stab first, and then, uh, Cass, you can... Cass can tell you what the real answer is, all right? Yeah, uh, that was the plan. Yeah, I figured. Well, we'll <laughs> I'm playing right along. And so um, so the, uh, the process of, of, uh, of trying to create um, scenes, uh, which we'd say that um, the important thing is to construct how would you know it if you saw it. Uh, and so those can be anywhere from a page to four pages or so of of writing that can include dialogue. It's really, if I, as, as a leader, walk into, whether it's a work group or an organization as a whole, how would I know that we're implementing what I'm talking about? Uh, how would I know it from what I saw occurring? Most experienced leaders, uh, when they show up, whether wherever that is, um, in their initial walkthrough, they can tell you whether things are okay or not. All right. Um, now, the more experienced they are, the, the harder they may have to work to actually articulate why they think it's okay, because it's almost, uh, it, it, it's almost a subconscious thing that they go through. But they pick up, why? Because they're seeing what people are doing and are saying that's what they should be doing. That's exactly the way that they should be dealing with what they're dealing with. Uh, so... Uh, when we think about the work, particularly about constructing scenes, it's in that spirit of how would you know it if you saw it? And this is hard work for people. It's much harder for leaders to do this work, at least in my experience, than it is to then do the work about trying to work the eight levers, uh, because it's a kind of a, of a conceptualization and then a granular, granularizing, I don't know if that's a word, making more granular, uh, that that vision in a way to think, yes, that, that's what it would look like. And last point, and turn to Cassie, it, it's not that that scene or those scenes, usually one won't do it, uh, filled with actors acting in a way that you say, yeah, this, this would be it, is, is prescriptive as much as it is directional. So it's not that I have to see people doing exactly this, uh, mm -hmm. but th 
this kind of activity is what, I, what I'm looking for or we as an executive team are looking for. And if I can see these types of things occurring, we got it. Now, what do I have to do to change the environment? Because those things are not occurring currently. And I can either decide I hired all the people who are uh, somehow inherently opposed to acting in the way that I want them to act, or I could take the more likely explanation, which is they're acting in response to a situation, uh, an environment that's been created at work that leads them to act as a group in a particular fashion. Yeah, let me uh, let me break in for a second and just hand this back to Anne, um, and then Cassie will circle back uh, and get your thoughts on the creation of the scene. Very good. Well, we're coming close to the uh, conclusion of the first half of our show. So let me just remind everyone, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall here with Mike Useem and Jeff Klein. And together we're speaking with Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon, the authors of Leading Successful Change. Jeff, I think we have time for Cassie just to give a, a response to your good question about um, idealized design. Cassie. Oh, thanks, Ann and Jeff. Um, I, I think I can just underscore what Greg said. I think that this is about aligning a senior team around the vision. And often um, when we see corporate change initiatives, they're at this very high conceptual level, like, you know, let's be more innovative, let's be more sales oriented, let's be better communicators. And, and looking behaviorally at the change sort of encourages you to get underneath that conceptual kind of blah, blah, to say, what do we really mean? Um, and doing that with the senior team means at the end of that process, there's, there's a really commonly held understanding of where you want to go. Um, and then you, then you figure out how to design for that. That's the levers. All right, we've got maybe just time for one question before a short break. And I have to say, Cassie and Greg, uh, I've read your book. Hearing you talk about it really underscores the uh, theater met metaphor. You know, we are talking about scenes. We're talking about actors, uh, staging, idealized design. Just help me understand uh, why that, why visualization is so important to change. And Cassie, this time I'm going to start with you and then, uh, then turn to Greg. So I think um, just to continue the, the theme that people recognize behavior through stories. If you think about the Disney case in the book, for example, their use of storyboarding to understand what a guest's experience is at every moment as they move through their, you know, their experience in the park or um, the way Airbnb used storyboarding to understand the experience of hosts mm -hmm. and guests. It, this is the language that human beings have used forever. Um, and we're tapping into that kind of storytelling and imagination to support mm -hmm. the creation of change. Uh, so probably the uh, the simplest way to put it would be, how would you know it if you saw it? Yeah. Right. right. Um, and the, the, the principle of idealized design is you start with what I want to see. Yeah. Uh, and then I work backwards from that. And one of the problems, if we work forward from where we are first, mm -hmm. is that we're limited by the constraints that are around us currently. So um, depending on the timeline and depending on the business, the level of the organization, how far out do you need to go? But what do I want to see? Right? And then um, we'll, we'll work backwards from that in terms of of um, how, to, how to produce it. So how would you know it if you saw it? Uh, yeah. I think it's the key question. Very good. So the uh, quick takeaway would be pictures before words when we're trying to uh, marshal change. So Greg, I'm going to start with you. Um, do you want to start with the first lever or start with the lever that you think would be of greatest interest to our listeners? Where would you start? Well, what if, uh, given so many of the people in the audience are likely Americans, let, let me let me start with uh, one of the levers and then make a comment working out from that, which Cassie can pick up uh, pick up from there. Um, so one of the you know the premise of this is that we we are very adaptive critters and we pay close attention to uh, our 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 environment, um, and that if one 
we could use that, and we should use that, the fact of that and how we think about designing change. And it can be co-designing change. It doesn't have to be something that's done strictly on high. It can literally be something collaborative. Uh, but in the eight, uh, we, we broke out eight different, uh, eight different uh, influences uh, to create behavior at, at work. Um, and uh, one of those is rewards, which I'll just talk to for for a moment or two. So, for uh, for Americans um, especially, um, you know, money plays a very high place for for many Americans, and that's simply the way that we operate. It's the particular kind of reward. Um, but that conversation needn't end there. For there are other kinds of rewards. There are depending on the culture you're dealing with. The, Currency as it would uh, in in uh, in other societies. So rewards is meant to be um, is meant to be a broader cast a broader net than just just money. Uh, and depending, uh, it can it can be something you have great access to um, or limited access to in terms of the types of rewards. So in the book, uh, talk about an, uh, uh, different examples of how put people push the reward button. challenge and see if I can do this uh, through one of the cases in the book. I think the model is a fantastic uh, way of thinking about the introduction of new technology. And um, so one of the cases has to do with um, changing the workplace design lever, which is both tools and also the location of work. Um, and we talk about the first autonomous medical device, which is used to screen um, diabetics to see if they have eye disease if they have diabetic retinopathy. And it's autonomous because uh, it's a machine that does the diagnosis on its own. So the people lever would be, you know, who is using it? Um, most, most often an ophthalmologist is making that diagnosis today, but with this new device, the who is using it could be someone with high school training. And the where, the location, workplace design, today is a doctor's office and tomorrow could be, you know, Pearl Vision at the mall. They're putting these in the grocery stores. So um, 
the, the organization behind that, obviously the way the team works, uh, that's the organization lever. Where the decision is made, decision allocation, obviously a, a huge shift when you're talking about AI. Um, how do you measure the success of this? How does the information flow? So measurement and information distribution. Um, and task, the, the actual process of doing the work, all completely transformed by the existence of this new technology. It's yeah. a, wonderful. A tool, you know, into, a, if you want a great example for how you don't just drop a new tool in, think Iowa caucuses, um, but if you think systemically about introducing a new tool, you, you see that everything else changes around it, mm -hmm. and that's when you're productive. Very good. All right, this is Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall with Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem. And Jeff, I'm going to weave you in early here. So what follow-up question might you have for Greg or Cassie or both? <laughs> well, thanks, Ann. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I think it would be helpful to just keep to keep talking about these different levers here. Um, and, and I really want to underscore Cassie's point that this is a, um, you know, it's a system. They're not independent levers. So, uh, Greg, as you think about designing, um, you know, designing the system that would allow you to arrive at this uh, idealized state or, or this shared vision, um, you know, how many levers are, are would you recommend trying to activate at once, and how do you think about the interdependency between them? So um, the the first thing, just to just to go back um, to connect the last last two questions. Um, if I only work uh, one lever, which is I would argue is one way that we can understand many of the failures in organizational change. So we push a button or a lever at a time. So, um, and if we do TQM in the narrowest sense or um, um, a process reengineering, uh, we only work what in the model that would be the task button. And then we marvel at the fact that people don't change their behavior. Um, uh, or, or, or we go in uh, and we, uh, we might, uh, People, the people button includes training, so we train people, and then we're amazed that they don't use the training because we didn't change the environment in a way that actually made the training relevant, right? Uh, so <clears throat> um, if, we, if we only change something as powerful, for example, as compensation uh, and make it dependent upon some change we want, people will do a very good job often of getting you what you want, but they will break the rest of the organization in order to get you what you want, which is, a, is very different than designing the organization in a way that supports the kinds of rewards that you'd like to, or the kinds of things that you'd like to be rewarding. So simple example is quality versus volume, right? If, if I only re reward uh, volume, I will tear apart whatever else you, you've got out there in order to, uh, to get that to you, right? Um, but you may not at all be happy with what I've done to the rest of the organization in, in, order, in order to get that. Um, in terms of numbers of levers, um, so the, um, the back of the envelope guidance here, and our hope would be that at some point we'll be able to answer this in a, in a much more statistically uh, based fashion, but uh, the, the, the qualitative answer is people should feel that enough of their environment changed that they need to change their behavior in line with the kinds of scenes you want to see. That's the, that's the qualitative or subjective example. Uh, the quantitative one would be, you know, I guess would be that you want to change four or more of the levers so that people have a sense that they're in a different place Therefore, they have a felt need to go change their behavior. We're very good at changing behavior once we feel the need to change behavior. But I, I'm not just going to invest in that. I, I, it needs to be, uh, uh, it needs to be as an adaptation to a changed environment. So the point would be how the subjective answers, answer number three, would be that whoever behavior, whether it's the field sales reps, whether it's middle management, uh, whether it's the connection between your R&D department and the sales folks, whatever that focus point is, is that they should feel that the world has changed enough 
that they now have felt need to say, all right, I guess I better change my behavior. Uh, now let's explore explore that. So changing behavior, once we feel that there's a need for us to change our behavior. So I want to change enough of these influences in our environment so the subjective experience is, huh, I guess the old way of doing things isn't going to work anymore. I should make uh, some change. Let's see what change, and then those whether those messages are coming from the measurement system, the reward system, the training system, the way the organizational chart is set up, whatever combination of the, the, the eight levers, people are saying, ah, th this would be a direction I should go in uh, in order to, to, be, uh, to better adapt to this environment that I'm in. Cassie, maybe just for our listeners, and we have alluded to a lot of levers here, but just so we're really clear, what are the eight levers? All right, here you go. Um, workplace design, which is both physical tools and the virtual space and the location of work. That's one. Two, organization, which means both the lines and boxes, the org chart itself, but also the way people come together in meetings. That's two. Three, decision allocation, which has to do with roles and where authority is in the organization. Uh, four is measurement. So um, how do we know what success looks like? Um, five is information distribution, who has access to what information in the system. Um, rewards, which Greg has talked about, both compensation, but also intrinsic rewards. Yeah. Rewards. Um, people, which has to do with who you have, but also what their skills are, and can you improve their skills with training. Um, and finally, number eight is task, which refers to the work process, the, uh, the workflow. That's great. And when we're designing, we basically say, Four is a minimum, and if you can design with all eight, that's even better, depending on the strength of the intervention. It also makes a great criteria for evaluating a change before you launch it. If you can't change four of these levers, you know, if all you can do is send people to a training program, we say, don't start down that road at all. It's mm -hmm. not so, so if, if I could just add to something that Cassie has said, I think that in the in the end, uh, people should experience that the world around them has changed enough so they feel a need mm -hmm. to adjust their behavior. Mm -hmm. And that the way that they're likely to want to adjust their behavior, if you, if you work the levers sufficient, correctly, will be in the direction of the original scenes you constructed that you wanted to go and see. They're going to need help and, and guidance, et cetera. But without that felt need, which is... <laughs> In the absence of that, we do not change. As we will not, we will not change our behavior. Period. So the, the objective is to create an experience that people say, "I guess I better change." Now let's look at the environment and figure out what will be the most adaptive changes that I could engage in. That's great. Very good. So I'm going to do a quick reset here, and then Mike, you're going to lead us home down the home stretch. Mm -hmm. This is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Useem and Jeff Klein. And today, our guests are Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon, co-authors of Leading Successful Change. All right, Mike, over, over to you. And thank you, Annette. And kind of a wrap-up question here as follows. Academics sometimes refer to punctuated equilibrium, which I think is a fancy way of saying we don't have to change every day, but we got to do it once in a while. But Greg, you've often used the metaphor of white water. We're constantly in it, and we've pretty much got to be involved in continuous change. So speaking to some of our listeners who are thinking, do I have to put this book at my um, bedside and read it pretty much every month? Or can I take change on right now and then five years later come back to it for a second time? There it is. is what do you think my response is going to be, Mike? <laughs> Put it on your bed tail. Got it. Got it. Um, I think one of the one of the major major changes that we've been slow to build into our thinking um, was explicitly the way we talked about change um, in say the the mid the mid-20th century, maybe into the third quarter or so of the 20th century, was the steady-state change, steady-state model, right? Um, and um, 
Uh, I'd suggest that that's, well, we don't refer to it in that way explicitly anymore. It was a very powerful notion. Uh, And I I think it's still in the water supply. Uh, And that we would be, we would do better if we thought about change as more in terms of this whitewater uh, modality or image uh, metaphor that um, the book, Your Job Survival Guide, that I wrote with Robert Gunther, uh, that the question is not whether or not there's change. The question is how it, white is the water today? Is it a level one or is it a level five river? Uh, but there's something going on all the time. And that, um, you know, my, m- m- the, the uh, data point, the particular data point I'd use about that has been, if you go onto monster.com or some other major job search engine uh, and, and see how long it takes them to start asking, uh, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever? And those evers are almost always about change. You know, implementing a new information system or a new reward system or opening an office or closing a business line, whatever that, that, that is. And so uh, I would suggest that much of what we used to think of as our job, so if we went back to mid-20th century, plus or minus, uh, actually has been has gotten to the point where it's taken for granted. That's what you do. Fine. Now, let's talk about <laughs> how, you, how you do change, and the change and the successful managing and leading of it has become uh, the predominant, uh, and maybe not the, a predominant uh, and... Um, um, uh, a predominant skill that permeates uh, so much of what, what we do that if uh, what we used to think of as people's jobs has almost become a, an assumed platform, and then we go to, and how do you change this, how do you change that, how do you change the other thing, and that's a different that's a different reality, one that we moved into, I think, in the late 20th century, and I I don't, as we're all doing this work remotely currently, I don't see any particular sign that uh, we're moving out of it. So I can see from Ann's face we've got about one minute. Uh, Cassie, you want to add a a one-minute addition to that and then back to Ann? Sure. Um, I think that we, the model helps us think about how we move out of the moment we're in right now, what the the post-COVID world looks like. Some of our clients are saying, look, some of our strategy is on ice right now, but some of our strategy is very much accelerated by what we're going through. So how, how do we think about these changes in a systemic way so that we hold on to the, to the positive innovations when this is over? Great. And back to you. Very good. Well, um, we have maybe just one more moment here, and I'd just like to ask both Cassie and Greg uh, their sense of whether or not how change is received, whether we are the authors or the recipients of change. Is it better to be the author or the recipient? I have the last word. I think that um, the model gives us an opportunity to be the authors of change and design towards that ideal scene that we want uh, to see for our organization. It gives us a chance to align people around that vision. Um, and that's a, just a more positive way of approaching change. Greg, you get the last word. Um, thank you. I, I I would say in those classic academic and consulting words, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, so so uh, uh, you can buy a set of problems with with either one, right? So um, I author change, then I've got to convince the world around me. I have to develop their felt need to join in. If I'm not the author of the change, then. I have to deal with somebody else's felt need and either come aboard or not. And I, I think the work we're talking about is with the construction of scenes that we want to see and then what kinds of things would make those scenes come to life. It's a way of helping join in the process of, of collaborating around. So what do we want the future to look like and how do we want to construct our world so Whatever the change is that we want to want to put in place, we can actually put in place. All right. Well, very good. Well, Cassie Solomon and Greg Shea, thank you so much for joining us on Leadership in Action. Today, uh, Jeff and I had the pleasure of going through your book when it first came out, and we're looking forward to uh, seeing the updated version. Can you tell everyone where they can uh, find out more about your book? 
Well, uh, almost anywhere, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, certainly in uh, the uh, you know the, the major book distributors, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you can go to uh, you can go in, into any of that uh, through those sites, or uh, you can go through. Um, my website, um, gregoryshade.com, we have a, a website for the book as well. Uh, so uh, Amazon, uh, Barnes, Barnes & Noble would be a good place to start in terms of, in terms of the book. Uh, Cassie may have, a, have other leads as, as well. I was just going to mention the Wharton School Press uh, website. Oh, great. Oh, we can't miss the Wharton School Press. <laughs> well, Cassie and Greg, thank you so much. And Mike and Jeff, we have about, oh, two minutes or so for our traditional after action review. So, uh, Mike, I'm going to cold call on you first. What thoughts? Okay, you I'll, I'll jump in. I, I think uh, great to have our guests on because if, <laughs> if there's a month in, in our lives when change is important, we're in that month and probably for another month to go. And thus, really good to think about it conceptually by learning from other companies. So they've offered up uh, Viacom and Twitter and uh, drawing on the experience of others. Uh, our co-authors now have written a very nice account on how to think about this because we're all in it and we're probably going to be in it for a while. We can think intuitively. We should. We can also think conceptually in this book, in, in my view, uh, help people frame out what they're doing. They realize they're not alone in doing it. And here are some of the steps that need to be taken. Um, I think one thing that is heartening to me, especially in the time of COVID-19, Greg, your reassurance that we are very adaptable <laughs> because boy, are we gonna need to be adaptable. And then moreover, you give me some hope for change, um, especially in Cassie, I liked your uh, caution about what, is change realistic? Can we actually do the change? If not, let's not go down that path and set us up for, um, for failure. So I appreciate that. And if we are, check the white water and if change is in order, then grab hold and make it happen. So let me first, once again, thank Greg and Cassie for being on the show. Greg, Greg Shea and Cassie Solomon, we very much enjoyed your talking about your updated book, Leading Successful Change. Let me also give a special thank you to our producer, Patty Hall, for making this happen. To our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem and Jeff Klein, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 